You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Now, after Jesus selected his disciples and set them apart to himself, he began to really teach about the life of discipleship. What would be expected of his men? Uh, The preface to this teaching is given to us in verse 17 to 19 of Luke chapter 6. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So we notice how this crowd gathered together to hear this message. They didn't come to hear a message. They came for the power of Christ to be released upon them. But it's interesting that Jesus responded to their desire for miracles and power, of course, in one sense, by actually giving them the miracles that they were looking for, the healings and deliverances that they were looking for. But secondarily, he gave them teaching. He gave them his word. Now, there are some phrases there in those verses that tell us that Jesus was incredibly popular at this point. He People came from even Judea and Jerusalem, that'd be the south, and Tyre and Sidon, the north, even up into Gentile territories. But they came there to be healed. They came to see power come out from him. And he, verse 20, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Now, this sermon, there are a couple things that should be said. Notice, first of all, that he puts his eyes on his disciples. Now, this is more than likely more than simply just the 12, uh, but people who want to be his followers. They want to be learners. They want to be taught by this rabbi and to embrace his life and his teachings. And this is a very disciple-based message. Now, beyond this, the question then is, is this the same message that Jesus delivered in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? And I think on one hand, we'd be forced to say, uh, well, no, it can't be. There are some differences. The location seems to be slightly uh, different. He came down with them and stood on a level place, it says in verse 17, rather than climbing up onto a hillside, but also there are differences in the content. At the very least, this is a greatly reduced or simplified version of the Sermon on the Mount, or condensed, I should say. Uh, But at most, this is just a completely different environment that Jesus delivered this message. And I think for me, I think about the era that Jesus was living in without recording devices and uh, people weren't writing down his messages and posting them onto the internet or anything like that. And so to have a message that would be delivered with some changes and variations from place to place and from time to time would be a very good strategy for Jesus to employ, which tells me that what he taught was of great importance. 
And so he begins this message in verse 20 as he began uh, the Sermon on the Mount with a word of blessing. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus clarifies the kind of poverty and hunger and mourning or weeping that he is looking for. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And of course, there's a mourning over the condition of sin in the world. And it's a great blessing to have these kinds of attitudes in your life. I love that the first step really in the life of discipleship is blessed are you who are poor. Of course, following this out into the book of Acts and into the epistles, uh, it doesn't mean that we're all called to a life of poverty, although many have chosen this kind of life as a result of choosing to follow after Christ. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Jesus would announce. But beyond just physical poverty, uh, there is something deeper, isn't there? You can have physical poverty, yet be a proud individual. Uh, here, however, Jesus is referencing a spiritual poverty before the Lord, seeing God for who he is understanding his holiness, his might, his majesty, and being humbled in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And as a response, experiencing personally within a great poverty of uh, spirit. And so he says all of these things. There's great blessing in this life that is moved by God. I think Isaiah, when he said, woe is me, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and I'm a man of unclean lips, when he saw the Lord, or Moses at the burning bush. I think there are various moments, Daniel, when he fell before uh, the one like the Son of Man, or John, when he, you know, humbled and, and fell before the Lord, when he saw him in his resurrected state, in his glory, in Revelation chapter 1. When you catch a vision for that, you're brought into a place where the self isn't the major distraction. The, the self isn't what you, you know, promote. You're not thinking of self beauty, but you're thinking of the beauty of the Lord. And you say, I am poor. Blessed are you who are poor. That's the first step in entering into the kingdom of God. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, verse 21, hungry now. And when you are passionate for that righteous life, Jesus says the day is coming where you will be deeply satisfied. And for those of you who are weeping now, you're thinking about the kingdom of God. Your priorities are on the kingdom of heaven. The day is coming when you will laugh. And then Jesus announces probably one of the most difficult ones of all for us to understand. He says, listen, when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil because of me, rejoice and leap for joy 
because your reward is great in heaven. I think rejoicing and being blessed by persecution is one of the hardest things for us as believers. But Jesus said, it's a sign of your identity with me. Now, on the flip side of that coin are the woes that Jesus pronounces. Four of them in verse 24 to 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You know, if you're filled with a prideful spirit, you've been greedy, uh, you have taken way too much for yourself. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Not that believers shouldn't laugh and have joy in this life, but for those who have made the focus of their laughter the here and now, rather than investing in the future, the day will come where they will mourn and weep eternally. Woe to you, verse 26, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You know, the false prophets who were judged by God and rejected by the Lord, uh, they had many fans. People loved them. People cared for them. But Jesus says, woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say, verse 27, to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now here we have Jesus giving us very hard words in this life of discipleship. Our personal righteousness, he says, we're to actually love our enemies. And this goes beyond, according to Jesus, it goes beyond uh, simply feelings of, you know, love. Obviously, with an enemy, it will be very difficult at times to have feelings of affinity for the things that they're doing. However, there are actions of love that can be conducted. And this is a very subversive kind of life, uh, very contrary to our own natural reactions and responses. This is a message. These are exhortations that if you don't have a daily vital prayer life and relationship with Jesus, where you're inviting him daily to manifest his presence in your own heart and life in a powerful way, where you're being transformed by that relationship with him. If you don't have that, then this kind of life is an absolute absurdity and impossibility. But he tells us, he says, I want you to love your enemies in three ways. Do good to those who hate you. And so that speaks of our works, actions, things that we actually do. And then bless those who curse you. So we speak things that would bless and love our enemy. And then pray for those who abuse you. We actually lift them up to God in prayer. So what we do for them, what we say about them, and then what we pray concerning them to God in heaven. Now he gives a couple of examples that are difficult for us, but he says, listen, if one strikes you, 
turn the other cheek also. Now, this doesn't speak of, you know, if somebody abuses your child or someone hurts your bride. No, we have a balance here. But it does speak personally of my own radical desire to be a person who is not interested in self-defense. And this is one of the things that is so penetrating about the message of the gospel. When you receive Christ and then you continue to spend time with Christ, meditate upon the cross of Christ, the more that you do this in your life, the more that you begin to realize that the one who was reviled with no cause did not revile in return. The one who was struck did turn the other cheek also. And to see Jesus as an example and to let his nature and his heart penetrate into yours is indeed the life of discipleship. Now, in verse 32, he goes on and says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So Jesus holds out from the world. He says, listen, there's nothing terribly exemplary about loving people who also already love you. Even the world has figured that out. Sinners love those who love them. And if you're only doing good to people who are doing good to you, well, the world is doing the same. And if you lend from people that you expect to receive back from, what credit is that to you? But he says instead, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The thing about God is that uh, there is such a thing as his common grace upon mankind. He is kind to the ungrateful, and he is kind to the evil. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus spoke of this in terms of, the Lord bringing down the rain upon the just and the unjust. You know, the person who is living in absolute debauchery and unrighteousness, whose field is next to a man living in righteousness, they both want the rain for their fields. And it's not as if the rain cloud simply pours upon the righteous life. No, it, the rain pours upon both fields. God brings the sun up for the entire world, not just the righteous. And so God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God uh, is loving those who are giving him nothing in return. And so Jesus here is announcing, he's saying, listen, if you can live this kind of life, if you can be merciful, even as your father is merciful, you will be living a life that is similar to your father in heaven, you'll be operating the way that God himself operates. Now, this is a powerful concept because what it's telling us is that it is through a relationship with our father in heaven that we partake of his nature and become like him 
able to love our enemies, to do good, and to lend, expecting nothing in return. I know lately I've been thinking quite a lot about the concept of my God uh, as my Father in heaven. I've been thinking about the need that I have within my own heart and life to relate to him as such. I've been thinking about in my own life the importance of teaching other people in my life how to relate to God as a father. One of the things that I know that I need so desperately is to regularly get out alone with God. For me, this usually takes the form of long walks in the wilderness, isolated, where I can pray through various situations and decisions and bring them before my father, get counsel from my father, hear from my father, listen to his heart. But the beautiful thing about that is that as I do, or as you do, there is a transformation that occurs where you begin to partake of the very nature of the divine and you become more and more like the Lord that you are worshiping and you will begin to more and more be able to have the ability to do as Jesus tells us to do in this passage, to love, to do good, to lend, to pray, to bless those who we would even categorize as our enemies. Now, in verse 37, Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, it's very clear that Jesus is not saying that we should be a people who turn off our brains and no longer have any discernment whatsoever. In just a moment, Jesus is going to tell us about some people being blind and the need to pull specks out of our eyes and so that we can or logs out of our eyes so that we can remove the specks in other people's eyes. In Matthew chapter 7, immediately after telling them not to be judges or to judge not, Jesus tells them not to cast their pearls before swine. There's a decision that is made. So to say judge not and you will not be judged doesn't mean never have a stand for righteousness, never hold fast to the word of God, let people run all over it and do whatever with it whatever they desire. Never rebuke any kind of uh, sin or lifestyle. Accept all of it. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying, however, is that you do not want to be a hypercritical person with a hypercritical spirit. It's one thing to have a conviction. It's one thing to have a belief. It's one thing to know what the Word of God teaches. And it's another thing entirely to live in a hypercritical, condemnatory kind of spirit. And some people have this. And, well, I should probably say it in a more accurate way. All people are prone to this. Instead, though, Jesus says, don't sit back with a hypercritical spirit. Instead, he says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So what we want to have is an uncondemning, forgiving spirit. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will it be put into your lap? So you want to open your hand to be generous, to be forgiving. Don't give condemnation. And if you do, this beautiful blessing is going to overflow in your life. For Jesus said... With the measure you use, 
it will be measured back to you. Now, this, I think, is a scary thought, but also a thought filled with great potential. In other words, here's what he's saying. The measure that you use, if you use the measure of hypercritical judgment, if you use the measure of condemnation, then here's what will be measured back to you, practically speaking, in this life. Judgment and condemnation. However, if the measure that you use is forgiveness and generosity, if that's the spirit that's coming out of you, and that's the measure that you use, that is the measure that you are also going to receive. You're going to receive generosity. You're going to receive forgiveness and grace. You're not going to receive as much of that condemning critical spirit. For with the measure you use, it will be, Jesus said, measured back to you. I know I've thought of this often in my private moments where I want to say wicked things about other people, slander other people, gossip about other people, question the motives of other people. I remember that with the measure I use, it will be measured back to me. He also, verse 39, told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Jesus asked. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You, for, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So here Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Hey, first of all, can a blind man lead a blind man? No, you've got to have sight, Jesus is saying. He's announcing to these men, I want you to be able to see. I want you, verse 40, to be fully trained like his teacher. I want you to listen to my words. I want you to receive from me. I want you to be mature. I want you to have sight. There are so many blind people out there, and I want you to have your sight so that you can lead them. However, Jesus would say, there is a human problem in this whole desire. The human problem is that usually the way people work is that they see the speck in someone else's eye. They see the thing that can give the person sight without noticing, ironically, the beam or the log or the plank that is in their own eye. <laughs> Tell me Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor. Here he tells them, you see a little speck in your brother's eye, but you've got a two by four that is protruding from your face. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck that's in your eye let me take it out when you don't see that big log. No, a hypocrite. First, you need to deal with the self and pull out the big log in your own eye so that you can help your brother also. It's not that you shouldn't help your brother, Jesus said. It's that you need to be a person who first comes under the scope, the teaching, the ministry of the gospel. We need to sit under it. We need to allow it to rebuke us and correct us and 
pull out the flaws within us. And if we do, and if that's the habit of our lives continually, then we are putting ourselves in a place of being able to give sight, being able to help those who are blind. And if you're able to do that, you'll always be able to lead someone else with great grace because you understand by the grace of God, there go I. I'm helping you with a speck, but I just pulled out a beam. For no good tree, verse 43, bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart, verse 45, produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now it seems that one of the tendencies uh, in the human spirit and in discipleship itself is to really cut ourselves a lot of slack. And we want to say, well, I know that there's not a lot of good fruit coming out of my life, but really at the bottom of who I am, I'm a great person. Jesus says, however, no, you know a tree by its fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. You can't say, according to the words of Christ, well, you know, actually, I'm a really good person. No, Jesus said, it's the heart that must be dealt with. That fruit betrays and evidences the root. No, it's out of the abundance of the heart that his mouth speaks. In other words, continue to allow the gospel to have access to your heart, that your heart might be transformed so that what comes out of your mouth, so that what comes out of your life would no longer be evil as is our natural disposition, but that what would come out of our hearts and lives is wonderful good. Jesus, verse 46 said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Here, Jesus closes his sermon in a similar way to the way he closed it in the Sermon on the Mount. However, here he emphasizes something important. He emphasizes that the building of the house required digging deep to get to the foundation on the rock. It's not just a finding a rock and building on it and the storms uh, cannot break it down. No, here the analogy is he found a place to build. It was near a stream, but he dug deep so that his building was actually built upon the foundation, the rock that was down below. And when the stream broke loose against the house, it couldn't shake it because it had been well built. And I find that it's so important for believers 
who have really genuinely given their lives to the Lord, it's so important that we would allow the message of the gospel, the word of Christ, to penetrate to the very foundational elements of who we are. Too often we leave things uh, left undealt with within our hearts, histories uh, in our lives, pains in our lives, sinful tendencies in our lives. And rather than dig deep and confess and apply the truth of God's word in our lives in those situations, instead of that, what we will often do instead is, you know, brush over them and say, well, I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed. But those ugly realities have a way of rearing their ugly heads at the most inopportune times in our lives. Instead, we need to be real and say, this is an issue in my life. It must be dealt with. I want to be clean. And so I encourage you, dig deep and let the message of Christ, the word of what it means to be his disciple, penetrate into your heart so that your heart might be changed and transformed so that when the storm comes, you will stand. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.